broadcasting from the Business Radio X studio in Orlando, Florida, it's time for Regions Business Radio Orlando. Regions Business Radio Orlando is presented by Regions Bank. Brave the beginning. Member FDIC. Welcome to Regions Business Radio Orlando, presented by Regions Bank, member FDIC, an equal housing lender. I'm Scott Wall. I'm a commercial banking manager with Regions Bank in Orlando, Florida, and we are broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio inside the downtown Marriott Hotel here in Central Florida. And my guest today is my friend and partner, Brett Bond. So first of all, Brett, welcome. Great. Thanks. Glad you're here. Brett is a is a managing director in our corporate advisory group out of Charlotte, North Carolina, and was kind enough to join us today for our second Regions Business Radio podcast. And today, broadly speaking, we're going to be talking about mergers and acquisitions. And Brett's got a uh, significant past with a number of of well-known firms selling and buying companies and advising on companies that are thinking about this. And it's a fun topic. He's a subject matter expert, and we're fortunate to have him at Regions Bank to help um, with our own clients that may be thinking about this. So let, let me start, Brett. You know, obviously the last couple of years, a lot going on, you know, with the pandemic, but you've been in this industry for many years, 20 plus years. And maybe tell our audience, if you would, about, you know, kind of the state of the market of, of M&A. And again, for the group that's listening, that's that's an acronym for mergers and acquisitions. But maybe maybe talk to the group a little bit about what are some of the primary macro factors driving that market in real time? You know, we're coming in off of 2021, which was a record year for M&A in, in North America and the United States. Um, we were at 50% over 2020, which was obviously impacted uh, a bit by the pandemic. But, you know, 2021 is for the record books. Um, it was pretty incredible. Now that uh, we're in 2022 and things have changed up a bit, and certainly everybody's concerned about inflation, everybody's feeling the supply side, and uh, you know commodity prices are sort of going all over the place, and then labor shortages, and all that sort of flows into, you know, in our business, in M&A, and what companies, they're companies who managed to through it really, really well, and are able to capitalize on that, and you know, look out for other businesses to acquire. And then there are other companies that it, that it's definitely, you know, taken a toll on, you know, just like, like, like we think it would. So when you, in your whole career, was there ever a year like 2021, just from a, maybe a volume perspective and, and then just multiples? Yeah, no, well, I've been doing it a long time and there's probably a, a few years that were, you know, 06, 07 before the big crash. It was pretty, pretty excited, but this is, this is a little different, but 2021, you know, there were several factors behind it. Tax law changes. People wanted to think about, you know, selling their businesses Coming out of the pandemic, businesses started doing well. The economy started bouncing back. And then, you know, the threat of rising interest rates, it hadn't started going up then. And so all that just sort of made for just an incredible year. I mean, that, yeah, no, not really. Um, to answer your question, um, in terms of how active it was. Yep. So. Yep. Well, I, I know that, you know, some of our clients have surely been in front of Matt in, in the last couple of years. And, and, that leads me to a, another observation. It feels like, Brett, maybe since 2020 and, and particularly 2021, you know, business owners slash clients of ours, 
they're asking us more questions about about M&A. And, and maybe more just proactively, maybe there's not a deal on the table, but they're thinking about it. And so how would you counsel, I mean, think about the fact that t- today, some of our listeners might be, you know, family-owned companies, maybe they've gotten called by someone interested, maybe not, but how would you counsel a, a company to even think about this process in the future? Yeah, no, we get that a lot. And you know, at the bank, um, we work primarily with, you know, founders, owners of family businesses that are facing this transition and thinking about it, you know, and things have changed. You've got, you've got business owners that look at their kids and their kids don't necessarily want to be in the business. And, you know, sometimes I think that hurts our feelings, but other times it's sort of the, you know, wow, okay, I need to start thinking about what I'm going to do with this. And so, you know, the counsel would be to, to sort of get your house in order, think about, you know, what do you want to do when you retire? What do you want to leave behind? What's your legacy? What do you want to leave behind for your employees, whether it's your family or not? And you just sort of think about how you're going to do that. And I think the one thing I would say is that the M&A process takes a lot longer than everybody thinks that it does. I mean, you read the, the Wall Street Journal and, you know, boom, there's a deal. But, you know, there's probably... And there's always exceptions to this, but there's, you know, a year's worth of planning to do that. It typically takes six to nine months to at least to sell a business from from when we actually start to finish. And then that leads to my other sort of thing I would caution is it's never too early to start. Just because you're talking to your financial advisor, your commercial banker or us, you know, it doesn't mean you're going to sell your business, but we can have conversations two or three, four or five years out that, that you can start thinking about how I need to change the business. One we run into is, you know, the, the owner of the company has held things close to their vest and they don't have a full management team. And so one thing we would tell everybody is you want to make sure you've got is as well as you can, you know, um, the, the key roles, the CFO, somebody who knows how to operate the business, someone who knows marketing, and you start having to build that layer of management below you. Some people are great at it, but some of them aren't. And that goes that, you know, again, if, if the biggest mistake we see is you wait too long, and then all of a sudden something happens, whether it's a health crisis or you just are ready to get out of the business, you know, it takes a while. And, and the health crisis, I mean, we've seen that recently, maybe a company the founder, unfortunately, has fallen ill. Lots of implications there, right? I mean, to your point, getting your house in order, and there's so many ways to go on that. But I think about, you know, not only that example, Brett, but I think about a company that, you know, maybe historically they haven't had an accountant come in and review their numbers. And so they think their numbers are good, but maybe having an independent third party come in and do some work, right? Maybe there's some risk points, you know, they haven't even considered. And these are things that you're counseling clients on, right? No, absolutely. You know, it doesn't have to necessarily be an audit. I mean, the bigger company you have, you start, you know, need audits for, you know, the bank and other reasons to have a full audit. But, you know, sometimes we literally get QuickBooks and uh, which can be a bit of a challenge and we work through it. It's not the end of the world. But if you start thinking about what you were saying, you know, maybe next year I'll get my financials reviewed and the the accountants will come in and tell you where your your controls are weak and you start thinking about that because I can promise you when the buyer comes in and looks at it they will figure that out so yeah I think that's that's really important you you brought up a good point and and I'm going to come back to this but if there is a sophisticated buyer for instance I mean they're really going to look under the covers right yeah like maybe speak a little bit about what a sophisticated buyer what to expect from a sophisticated buyer with due diligence 
Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's a, that's a big one. Um, you know, let me take one step back. Typically before we start a process, we'll encourage our clients to do what is called a QV or a quality of earnings, which the accounting firms are set up to do this. Actually, you know, there's a number of them that have full groups that come in and do a sell side QV and that's to look under the covers and sort of discover what might be issues in your company before the buyer does. And so that gives you a chance to do a little homework and fix whatever whatever it is. And sometimes there's accounting issues. Sometimes we're not following, you know, gap or whatever exactly the way we should. And, you know, a big buyer coming in is going to want that. And you don't want to be on your heels and find out when they find out you want to know ahead of time. Again, depending on how sophisticated and how big the company is, you know, a sophisticated buyer is going to do their own buy side Q of E. They're going to send in their own consultants for insurance, HR, you know, make sure that everything's sort of in place, you know, depending on what the company does, they'll send in operational consultants to, you know, how can we improve things? You know, that can be pretty intense. I mean, we just had an example where there was probably seven or eight different consultants, you know, looking for information and specific type of information, and it can be pretty get pretty crazy. And just for, for our audience, let me, let me clarify something. A company that, again, may or may not be thinking about selling that might bring in a, an accountant in or an insurance broker to help with risk points, that's, that's just to, to, whether they sell or not, that's good housekeeping, right? But what you're referring to is, for instance, if a company is maybe under LOI, it's a letter of intent with a sophisticated buyer, and there's a process being run, you're speaking about the actual due diligence where that buyer is putting a lot of work into it, correct? That, that's right. In, in an M&A process, you typically go through an indication of interest process. You invite a, a certain number of buyers back, whether it be private equity or strategic buyers. And then, you know, they come in and do a management presentation, get to know the company a little better, and then move towards an LOI. And then once that LOI is signed, you begin this due diligence sort of process. They've done some of it along the way. They'll typically have a marketing study done. Sometimes they have it done even before they sign the LOI because they're interested in a particular industry and they want to know all the sort of components of it. Um, But then once you sign that LOI, you know, here come the consultants and, you know, to, to really slice and dice the business. And a part of our role as the advisor, there's something called a data room where we put all this information, the financials, the corporate docs, the HR docs, the insurance policies, and all kinds, customer information, all kinds of information. And we manage how that information is sort of doled out to the, to the potential buyers and keep that organized so that it's it's a process that they go through because it can get out of hand if you're not managing it for sure. Well, and I, I, you bring up a good point. I'm going to come back to your role as an advisor. I think that's critical. Maybe spend a minute if you would. And, and you know, for a potential, let, let's say someone's thinking about selling their business. There's really two, and I guess this is a question in here somewhere, Brett, but there's, there's, there's really a strategic buyer and a financial buyer. Is that correct? That's right. Maybe yep. you, you could um, unpack that a little bit for the audience. Sure. Um, there's private equity groups. They range in sort of all sizes, um, you know, a couple hundred million dollars under management to literally, you know, billions. Um, it's gotten pretty sophisticated. And then you know, there's strategic buyers, which it could be your competitor, could be someone that's looking to get into your space. And we refer to a strategic that is either a public company or a privately held company that's independent of a private equity group. There's even really a third category, which is a strategic owned by a private equity group. And that sometimes is the best of both worlds because the private equity group is going to push to get a deal done. They have the capital. 
necessary to get the deal done, you know, for their portfolio company that may be this strategic. The upside to a strategic is they potentially can pay more for the company because they can offer synergies, they can combine it with their back office, but they're also on a little bit of a different timeline. Strategics typically take a little bit longer. They're more methodical about how they're doing it, where, you know, a private equity group you can put into a process. They do them all the time. They know the drill and, and, you know, they want to get a deal done as much as you do because that's how they make their living is making investments. So, you know, there's lots of nuances between them, but that's, I think that covers the main ones. It it feels like, and I've been here in central Florida for, for 20 plus years on the banking side, and it feels like more private equity is coming around these parts. And, and do, do you feel like that? And what I'm, and specifically Brett, you know, historically, you know, a private equity shop might show up if a company had a certain earnings profile. We're seeing private equity around these parts, maybe a little downstream from that. Um, but they're, 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 I guess there's a lot of money that needs to be put to work, right? Yeah, and that's a, that's a great point. And people will quote different numbers, but they call it overhang or dry powder. Um, and depending on who's sort of counting, but the numbers, you know, a trillion dollars worth of capital in private equity groups that's they're trying to put to work. Typically, they have LPs, and, they, and and these funds have a certain finite life, and they have to invest it, and then they, you know, essentially harvest those when they sell them. You know, again, so there's a process that they're in, and so they they're aggressive out there trying to buy buy these companies because if they don't put the money to work, um, their investors will ask for it back. Yeah. And then the other comment on that is, you know, just as an asset class over the past, you know. 10, 15, 20 years, given the low interest rate environment, you know, endowments and schools and pension funds and all that are looking for return. And so where, you know, a number of years ago, it would be, you know, five or 10% would be allocated to private equity group. You know, now it may be 20, 25%. I don't know the exact numbers, but it's significantly higher because they're chasing that return. So there's just more and more dollars out there chasing, you know, these companies and, you know, that's why you probably see them around more because some of them are coming, we call down market, that they're looking at smaller companies where, you know, before they used to sort of just focus on the larger ones and they're, and they're in different industries than we've seen before too. Yeah. Surprising, not just technology, for instance. I mean, there, there's some uh, meat and potatoes industries that we've seen them here in this town paying big dollars for, for well-run companies. Absolutely. And that's key. Well, well-run companies are very, very attractive for yeah. these guys. Absolutely. Brett, take a minute also, if you would, you, you kind of hinted about an advisor's role in this kind of dance. How important is that? And, and you know, this is a minor commercial. We feel like having someone with your expertise is important potentially for a management team. If they don't sell a company or buy a company just to understand the process. Maybe speak about that. Why can someone with your role help a business owner? You know, if if you're you're dealing with a potential buyer yourself and, and you're acting on your own behalf, you know, there can be certain situations where, you know, you've got to negotiate and you're uncomfortable with that and you want, you know, an agent or somebody in between and we play that role. Another role we play is sure you may be getting calls from buyers all the time. But if you if you sort of deal with one and it doesn't work out and then you go to the next one, it doesn't work out sort of a linear process. You know, two years later, you look back and you're like, wow, I haven't accomplished anything. I haven't sold my company. So what the advisor or what we do is put process around it. It's all about putting the materials together. How do we market this business? What are the pluses and minuses of this business? And then when we go to market, we have a defined buyer's list. 
the seller, the owner of the business in this case, when he's selling this business, knows exactly who we're going to talk to and why we justify that. There can be bigger processes where you go to 100 buyers. There can be other processes where you go to four or five, right? And then we just keep you know, keep, keep it in line. And we set dates certain where, um, you know, indications of interest that we talked about earlier are due and LOIs are due. We manage the due diligence process and we're there to create urgency that if it, you know, really the message is to the buyers and, and, and the, particularly the private equity guys know how to do this or know how to do the process. We create urgency because if you know you don't acquire the business, someone else is mm-hmm. and it, and it, sends a signal that if a particular, you know, seller or owner of a company selling his business hires an advisor, particularly a quality advisor, that he's serious about it. Because you're not going to go through this process, you know, it's a once in a lifetime event for a lot of these people. You, you know, you're just not going to do this very often and uh, you want it done right. Yep. And so, you know, we will argue that that we will more than pay for our Fees that are involved just by by the process and getting a higher multiple for the business and getting a deal done in a reasonable period of time. Well, additionally, I mean, with your background uh, and your colleagues' backgrounds, you have relationships with private equity firms and strategic buyers, perhaps from past deals that have done, right? So, I mean, that's got to play a part here too, I would think. No, and that's exactly right. I mean, you know, at at Regions, we have a sponsor coverage group and they keep track of, you know, probably three or 400 different, you know, private equity groups, what their their wants are, what are they looking for, what platforms are they building, you know, and then we try to identify that and sort of connect connect the dots. And then to your other point, you know, done a number of deals in my career and, uh, you know, you definitely leverage that when you can in terms of, you know, going back to buyers that you know really well and, and uh, you know, hey, this particular buyer would love something like this. Yeah. And so that's how, that's how you do it. Well, you got me thinking now as we kind of end our time here, Brett, think about maybe for our audience a story or two of a deal that you've worked on in your past. And it could be not a great outcome or a grand slam, you know, something that it was interesting enough to pass on to our audience if, if you have one. Yeah. So we closed the deal in February. It was an industrial filtration business owned by a, a family office out west. And uh, we did a process, started it in, in uh, August of 2021. We were trying to close by the end of the year, didn't quite make it, but we had incredible interest in the business. We ultimately ended up selling it to a, a private equity group that had a strategic, and that strategic happened to be their biggest competitor. These two companies were of similar size, and it sort of causes a unique situation in the in the sale process because the seller doesn't want to just give the buyer all of their information, all their customer information, all their sort of trade secrets and secret sauce on how they do what they do. And so it can be pretty tedious getting it done. And, and there's some, you know, tough phone calls and situations that you do. We actually set up separate teams. We call it clean team where the particular portfolio company or the competitor can't review the information. It all has to be done at the private equity group until, you know, the last two or three weeks when they sort of have to see that information to sort of close the deal. So we closed that deal in mid-February and I think our client was was ecstatic and that one was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work, but uh, it had nine different locations 
and uh, just made keeping track of the, all the data and that stuff pretty pretty complicated. Well, you bring up something, and, and perhaps I'm stating the obvious here, but for any business owner or team thinking about selling, I mean, clearly there there's a confidentiality process here, and having someone like yourself hired, I mean, I'm sure all parties are under um, uh, non-disclosure agreements along the way. I mean, that's that's a really important piece of this, correct? Yeah, and and so back when I was describing the process, and we talked about you know writing these marketing materials to put the company in sort of the best light possible. Before we approach anybody, we have them sign non-disclosure agreements that are negotiated, you know, between to make sure that they can't poach employees, they can't use certain information. You know, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, we do the best we can. I mean, we can get it to 99% there, but there's potentially always someone that'll tell a secret and you have to be really careful. And that leads to once you're in the market and this urgency that I was talking about, you want to close a deal as fast as you can so that you minimize you know, any potential hazard to the business while you're out there. Theoretically under NDA, but, but you want to move fast and get it done. Time's your enemy. Got it. Sure. Well, look, first of all, thank you for coming on the podcast today. This is, uh, you're my second guest and, uh, this is a really great topic. It's, it's a topic that we're talking to clients a lot these days. And I know we've had you down in market a couple times and we'll keep having you down, uh, you and your partners, um, at Charlotte, but it's, it's important right now. I mean, there's generational wealth that's passing along here. We see it firsthand. We're trying to help clients when it makes sense. So it's a great topic and appreciate your expertise around this topic. So Thanks yeah. for being here. Scott, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. I'd like to thank Brett and all of our guests, and I want to thank our listeners to Regions Business Radio Orlando, presented by Regions Bank, member FDIC, an equal housing lender. You can enjoy our episodes anytime by visiting businessradiox.com and selecting the Orlando studio and then clicking on Regions Business Radio. This program is also available on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you enjoy your favorite podcasts. Please be sure to subscribe to the program so you don't miss any of our future episodes. I'm Scott Wall, and you've been listening to Regions Business Radio Orlando on Business Radio X. Business Radio X.